Good morning. As Brennan said, we're going to actually be praying for that guy with the black eye afterwards. And the one in the blue as well on the right-hand side, I suggest you don't drive anymore. Let your wife drive from here on in because there's something problematic with your eyeballs. It is so good to be together and to be celebrating Father's Day together. Let's go ahead and turn in our Bibles, please, to 1 Peter chapter 4. You know, as I was preparing this morning, as I have want to get into God's Word, to get around this message before I prepare to, to give it, I couldn't help but feel for at least a moment, maybe we have missed it somewhat this morning. Today is an extremely happy day. It's Father's Day. The sun is out. It's New Members Day, which is always exciting. And we'll be taking new members to our local church. It's also our 13-year anniversary today as a church. We exactly amen. So it's 13 years ago today that we started in Normanhurst Boys High School. And so I'm aware there's a degree of excitement with all this. And I thought, man, maybe we should have celebrated with some type of message addressing the day and enjoying the day. But instead, I've got this one in front of me, 1 Peter 4. And as I thought that this morning, I wondered, my, maybe we've missed it. I just felt the gentle rebuke of the Father himself. That actually, although this passage in front of us is not a rah-rah, let's high-five each other on the way out passage. It is exactly the one that he wants to address us today, specifically, I believe, on the day that we are 13 years old. We're becoming a teenager, and I think this message is a father's message to a teenager to prepare him for what is to come, to prepare them in sobriety, not in a rah-rah, but in a way that is reality for all of us as Christians. J.O. Packer once said, There is no truer or happier way to describe Scripture than as God preaching to us. God is preaching to us this morning as we read these words. They're not altered words. They are His ordained words to us as a local church. So if you're making notes, I've called this message Living for the Will of God. And let's listen in as God himself addresses us. 1 Peter 4, verses 1 through 6. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past, suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached, even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. Let's pray. Lord, what a joy it is to know that as we gather around your word and we hear your exact words, we're listening to you preaching. Lord, how kind that on Father's Day we sit 
at the feet of our ultimate Father, which is you, to be addressed by you, and to be helped and encouraged and aided and prepared by you. Oh Lord, would you speak to us this morning? Would we hear your words in the joy of the day? Would we hear your words cutting through all things to gain our attention and to speak to our hearts? In Jesus' name, amen. You know, over many years, there have been many different voices that have tried to make sense of the suffering of Jesus Christ. Many voices and many names that have tried to work out what was the point of all of his suffering. And one man who got a lot of traction was the man called Albert Schweitzer. And in the quest of the historical Jesus, this is what he writes about the suffering of Jesus. There is silence all around. The Baptist appears and cries, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Soon after that comes Jesus. And then the knowledge that he is the coming son of man lays hold of the wheel of the world to set it moving on the last revolution, which is to bring all history to a close. But it refuses to turn. And so he throws himself upon it. Then it does turn and crushes him. Instead of bringing in the eschatological conditions, he has destroyed them. The wheel rolls onward. And the mangled body of the one immeasurably great man who is strong enough to think of himself as the spiritual ruler of mankind and to bend history to his purpose is hanging upon it still. Listen. This was his victory and his reign. According to Mr. Schweitzer, the suffering of Jesus was nothing more than a tragic accident. It was a tragedy. He appears to be the son of God. He appears to be the son of man himself. But something has gone wrong. This was not his rule and reign. Instead, as he tries to change things, he gets taken out by suffering. He dies unexpectedly. So it all comes to an end. All of humanity's hopes don't work out. All of God's hopes don't take place. The suffering of Jesus was nothing more than a tragic accident, according to Mr. Schweitzer. And yet I'm grateful for the Apostle Peter because in the kindness and grace of God, he tells us a very different story, does he not? In 1 Peter 3 verse 18, we read, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. It's clear in the way that is written that this was planned all along. This wasn't a tragic accident. The suffering of Jesus wasn't something that he was blindsided by or didn't see coming. No, it was planned all along that he would come as the Son of Man to suffer once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us back to God, that he might reconcile us to the Father, which was his great mission in the suffering and the cross. Jesus himself told us that this was the reality three times. He told Peter three times that this was going to take place. In Mark chapter 8, verse 31, echoed in 9.31 and in 10.33, Jesus says, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed, and after three days rise again. Quite clearly, Jesus knew what was coming. 
Quite clearly, Jesus knew that he was going to give his life away as a ransom for many. Quite clearly, Jesus knew that the pathway for the gospel to come would be his sacrifice, his suffering, and ultimately his death on the cross. He knew that when he came to the world, the road of the gospel would be one of suffering for him. And so when he gave his life away, it wasn't tragedy, it was triumph. It is finished. This was always the plan. I've embraced it. I won. It is finished. Even though Jesus knew that for the sake of the gospel, this would mean profound suffering in the way that he gave his life. And what Peter is doing right here at the start of chapter 4, particularly in verse 1, is he's helping us see that for us as Christians... We need to be ready and willing to suffer for the sake of the gospel too. It wasn't just him who was called to suffer. But as Christians, for as followers of Jesus, we need to be ready and willing to embrace the call to suffer for the sake of the gospel as well. Make no mistake, his suffering was unique. He suffered as the only sinless and innocent one that has ever walked on this earth. He suffered to give his life away as a ransom for many for the forgiveness of our sins. It was a unique suffering. But what Peter wants to help us see here is this road to suffering for the sake of the gospel was not just Christ's. If you are calling yourself a Christian, it is your road as well. It may not be popular today, but it is from the word of God himself. God is preaching to us and God is telling us this will be your roadway too. So how, how does this work? How do we prepare our hearts and our minds to be ready and willing to suffer for the sake of the gospel? How does this work? How do we go about getting ready? What does it a person need to know and to do to prepare to be willing to suffer for the sake of the gospel. Well, praise God, that's what this text is about. Having introduced the concept to us at the start of verse 1, all the way through to verse 6, he's talking to us about then how we prepare our minds and our hearts and our lives so that when suffering comes, we won't be surprised. But we would embrace it for the glory of God, understanding this was always part of the pathway of what it means to follow Jesus. And so I have three points this morning, three points that I'm just going to look at as we go through the text together, but really just one hope. And it's the hope that today we would be sobered by this text and that we would be truly prepared to be ready and willing to embrace suffering for the sake of the gospel when it comes. For some of you, it may have already arrived in your schools or in your universities or in your workplaces or in your communities. It may have already arrived where you are being opposed for the sake of Jesus. For others of you, it is coming. We need to be prepared. And so I hope today we can be prepared by Peter and indeed by God himself. So how do we do it? What does a person need to do to know and to do to be prepared and willing to suffer the sake of the gospel, three things, three things in this text. And here's the first. Number one, we need to become a person of resolve. We are never going to be willing to suffer for the gospel unless we are a person of resolve. Look with me at verse one, the first part of it. 
He says, since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, since he's done this, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. Since then he suffered in the flesh. He's pointing us back to Calvary there. He's pointing us back to what Jesus has done in our place, how he has suffered, how he was ridiculed, how he was slandered, how he was abused, how he was ultimately put to death. Since he has suffered in his flesh, since suffering was part of his walk, Arm yourselves with the same way of thinking, i.e. understand that as Christians, part of your walk will involve suffering as well. David Helm observantly says it this way in his commentary, quoting on us, and I was challenged by it. He says, today, at least in the West, I believe it is the church that suffers from naivety of mind. It is difficult for Christians here to understand and embrace God's intentions to suffer. We prefer a gospel in which God gives us healthy bodies and bulging wallets. And we too readily think that material blessing is the entitled reward of the gospel. To put it bluntly, the West expects Jesus to come with comfort, ease, and acceptance from the world. I was convicted by that this week. Don't know about you. But it read my mind. It read what I perceive in our society. Sadly, even in our Christian culture, the West expects Jesus to come with comfort and ease and acceptance from the world. That's the assumed norm. I'll become a Christian. Sweet. My best life now. I'll be healthy. I'll be wealthy. I should be pretty good to go. See, there have been many good things come out of the United States. Many great things, I think. But one of the worst things is the health and wealth gospel. That stinks. This idea that if you follow Jesus and you give your life to Jesus, that in due course, as you live for him, he will make you healthy, he will make you wealthy, it will be your best life now. Biggest church in the world, Joel Osteen's church, that is his whole mantra, your best life now. Is it attractive? Of course! Is it true? No. It's not what the Bible teaches, not at all. But it sounds right, doesn't it? It sounds attractive. We love to accept, we love to go after the Australian dream of just being ease and comfort. And we assume that I become a Christian. God's just going to help me on that same path. So my life will be pretty sweet. It should be pretty comfortable. It should be pretty easy. I should be pretty accepted by most people in the world. Sadly, in the third world countries, the health and wealth gospel takes off. They are desperate. And so they go after it with all their might. But do not think for a moment that we're not affected by it in the West as well. We are. It's not uncommon to sit with people pastorally and they are ticked off with God. And why are they ticked off with God? Because they're suffering. How can God love me and I be suffering? Really? Because what I read in my Bible is, since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. Suffering will come to you. If you are going to be a follower of Christ, that is a pathway of suffering. Jesus tells it himself. It's not like a sovereign grace distinctive or something I'm just making up. Jesus tells us, Mark chapter 8, verse 34. He says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. That does not sound like a jolly for Jesus, some type of fun run, does it? Sounds like this might be difficult. I've got to deny myself. 
Our society says, don't deny yourself, embrace it, your best life now. Jesus says, no, deny yourself. Deny yourself and take up your cross and follow me. And so, Sovereign Grace, I want to ask you, Christian, I want to address you individually. Have you resolved in your heart that suffering for the sake of the gospel is part of what God has called you to? Have you resolved it? Because if you haven't resolved it, you'll be surprised when it comes. You will feel that God's letting you down. Have you resolved in your heart as a Christian that if I'm truly going to live flat out for Jesus, if I'm truly going to represent him here in this earth, if I'm truly going to try and be his ambassador, then that will probably mean I will suffer for the sake of the gospel. I'll be maligned. I'll be persecuted. I will face opposition. That doesn't start actually out there in the world, Monday through Sunday. It starts in our minds right now. A resolve that this will probably be my story. And have you in the same breath, have you resolved in your hearts that truly following Christ means truly dying to sin? Truly breaking from sin, truly making a connection in your life that says, I have decided to follow Jesus, no turning back, no turning back. Have you made that resolve in your heart? Because my experience is that isn't just the moment when you become a Christian. It happens every morning when your alarm goes off. Have I decided to follow Jesus or have I not? Is there turning back or is there no turning back? This is what Peter actually explains to us. And the rest of verse 1 it says, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. Listen. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Now to be clear, what he's not saying there is that in and, tr- in and through your Christianity, you should and will be completely free of sin in your life. Okay, that is a misrepresentation of this text. That is heresy. It is not very helpful. James chapter 3 verse 8 and 1 John 1 verse 8 completely negate that where it says if anybody says you don't have sin in you as a Christian you're a liar so let's just put that to bed then that we assume I'm not going to be sinless in my life growing up in a church I grew up in a church very different from ours I remember a pastor getting up in our church when I was growing up and just saying I don't know about you but I haven't sinned this week I trust you haven't as well and look I was only about 12 so you're like you have no clue. And I didn't know my Bible very well. I wish I did because there would have been a little 12-year hand. 12 year. Hey, listen, what about John 3 verse 8? I didn't know that at the time. But that's some teaching. That You know what? This teaches us that we cease from sin. So stop it. That's not what it's saying. You will not sadly be able to completely cease from sin in this life. Because of the reality of indwelling sin, it will be something you are battling with until your dying day. That's not his point. But what his point is, is that if we're truly going to follow Christ, then we must resolve in our lives to truly be dead to sin, to no longer be living for ourselves, to be living for our old ways, to be living what we want, but instead with eyes fixed on Christ, I'm you. He's talking about resolve. And when we resolve to do that and we're committed to do that, it is as if we have died to sin. We have ceased from sin because in our hearts, that's the connection we've made. I've decided to follow Jesus. No turning back, no turning back. And so folks, I want to ask you, have you resolved in your hearts that suffering will be part of what God has called you to for the sake of the gospel? It's coming. 
You don't have to turn on the TV and look at Pakistan or Iran or any of the other places. It's coming to you here in Australia too. It's coming. Have you resolved in your hearts that that's what it's going to mean to follow Jesus? And have you resolved in your hearts to really be able to embrace that? You must die to sin. Otherwise, all that will happen is the pressure will come on you and you'll just go, eh, never mind, I'm going to stick with them. It starts with resolve. Bruce Milne says at every point in the Christian life, right living begins with right thinking. It's one of my favorite quotes. It's so helpful. At every point of life, right, right living begins with right thinking. Right thinking is about conviction and resolve. Do you have a conviction and a resolve on these issues? Because you'll never embrace suffering for the sake of Christ if you don't. The first thing then that we need to understand if we're going to be ready and willing to suffer for the sake of Christ and the gospel is we need to become a person of resolve. But obviously it doesn't stop just with right thinking. It does then follow through in our hearts and in our lives with right living. And that's point number two. The second thing we need to do is live for the will of God. We are serious about embracing suffering in our lives. We must be determined in our lives to live for the will of God. Look with me at verse 2. He says, So as to live for the rest of time in the flesh, i.e. in this life, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. His point then is if we're going to be ready and willing to suffer for the sake of Christ, then we need to be living for the will of God. That needs to be the one central passion of our lives. That as for me and my house, I'm in for Jesus. I'm going to follow Jesus, no turning back. My life has been bought with a price. I am all in, all in to following him as my Lord and Savior. I'm going to deny myself and take up my cross and follow him all for the will of God. And in order to do that, we have to determine in our hearts and in our lives to no longer live for the human passions of the flesh. Literally, the old self, the old way we used to live, and the things that our hearts, in a deceitful way, can still be super attracted to. We still kind of want. You know, this has been a theme that the Apostle Peter has been talking to us about ever since the start of the book, hasn't he? In 1 Peter 1 then, verses 14 to 15, this is what he says. He says, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who has called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. His point is, listen, in light of who you are in Christ, in light of your identity, in light that you are now a child of God, he echoes this in chapter 2 verse 9 when he says that you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood a holy nation, a people for his own possession. And his point is, in light of these great realities of your identity in Christ, you need to be holy as he is holy. This needs to be the passion of your life, to put off the old self and put on the new self, not being conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but to go after becoming like Christ. Because that's your identity. A child of the King of kings and Lord of lords. And then he builds on that and echoes in that in chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. He says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, 
so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. His whole point is, listen, not only is your identity now in Christ, which means why sin should no longer have a feature in your life, but more than that, your sin, your old ways, they are waging war against you. They want to take you out. They want to see you diverted and distracted from serving Jesus. They want to take you to the pit of hell itself. They want to distract you and pull you away. And more than that, if you go that route as a Christian, your testimony will be shot. No one is ever going to look at your life and go, man, there's something so different about you. What is it? Instead, they're just going to go, you're just the same as me. The effectiveness of our witness comes in being different, not being the same. The effectiveness of our witness in some ways comes to standing out like a sore thumb in our lives. Why? So that people may see our good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. What he's saying is there will be some that will see your life and the way you're living and will find it attractive in a way that they'll go, what is that? Why do you talk like that? Why does your family look like that? Your marriage is so different to mine. What's the secret? And ultimately, they will be led on a path where they hear the gospel and respond to it, which is why they'll glorify God on the day of visitation. Because they'll see something in a life that draws them in to the glories of Jesus. But likewise, if we live just like the Gentiles, there is no drawing in because they don't see anything any different. There's so much at stake when it comes to battling our sin. And so Peter actually calls us to even more in verse 3 by really spelling out what these human passions are that we need to leave behind. This is what he says, verse 3. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. His point is, listen, you used to live like this, but since you started to follow Christ, these things need to be in your rear view mirror. He's effectively said, that's enough now. Stop. It needs to be different now. Those times are gone. Put him behind you. And he spells them out, sensuality. Sensuality is simply living without any regard for moral restraint, especially in the realm of sexual immorality. So he's talking there about adultery and homosexuality and prostitution and pornography. What we view with our eyes, he's saying, listen, these things, they should not even be named among you. They should have no place amongst you as a follower of Jesus Christ. Likewise, passions. He's talking there about the idolatry of the heart. John Calvin once said, our hearts are idle factories, and they are, aren't they? There's things that come up in all our hearts that we want and we crave and that we want to go after, and in effect, we start to worship them. He's saying, listen, that that isn't going to work anymore. Those things that will idolize, that you'll be tempted to idolize and worship, they'll distract you from Jesus. You've got to put them away. They've got to go now. Then there's drunkenness and orgies and drinking parties. All expressions of a life that is bent on following the flesh. 
a lifestyle that is being built all about serving the desires of self. I want it. I need it. I'm going after it. You say, not anymore. I shouldn't have a place amongst you. And then there's lawless idolatry. You know, on face value, that can just look like idolatry. But that doesn't make sense when you think about it. Because all idolatry is against God's law. The point of lawless idolatry is he's saying idolatry that will cause us to break the civil law, the laws of the land. It's like cheating on our taxes. When the government puts something in that they're saying, this is what we want you to do as a people, and we go, no, I'm not doing it, that's stupid. Or we do do things that we know the law of the land say no to, but we do it because we think they're wrong, and it doesn't really matter. He's saying, listen, that's lawless idolatry. He's already addressed this in chapter 3, saying we need to be submissive to those that God has placed in governing authorities. And here he's saying, it's one of the things as Christians then, it's not about doing that anymore. Those days are gone. You know, one of the things that stood out to me as I was reviewing this this week and preparing for this message was just the stark reality that down through the centuries, the sins of the world really haven't changed all that much, have they? We could be reviewing what is happening today. Yet he's talking about 2,000 years ago. It may have looked different in how it was played out, but the heart was exactly the same. Sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, lawless idolatry. And his point is whatever century you're in, for the sake of the gospel, those things have got to go. Given who you are and your identity, given your witness that is at stake, And given the harsh reality that, quite honestly, these things are at war against you, they've got to go. Ravi Zacharias, as I've quoted many times before, says, sin will take you further than you wanted to go, keep you longer than you wanted to stay, and cost you more than you wanted to pay. And so it will. And sadly, often you don't know how important that quote is until you have not heeded it. And you are suffering the consequences of sin taking you further than you wanted to go, keeping you longer than you wanted to stay, and costing you more than you wanted to pay. Listen, your sin is guilty of false advertising. It pretends that it will be fine. It's no big deal. You'll be cool. I mean, no one even knows, right? But what it doesn't tell you is this sin will come with nausea and vomiting and it will take you further than you wanted to go, keep you longer than you wanted to stay and cost you way more than you wanted to pay. And one of the things that we're not always really, I think, aware of is how Satan loves to get involved with our sins and fan them into flame. And he doesn't do that, in my opinion, with grand announcement. He does it quietly. Watching waiting where he can quietly take you out one of the books I read during COVID was C.S. Lewis's Screwtape Letters it's a wonderful um, it's a fictional book but it's based on theological realities and it's a wonderful book about a demon called Screwtape who's a senior demon and he is training his young nephew Wormwood And how to really deceive people, how to pull them away from following Christ, how to ensure that they waste their life. And there's one point in the book where Wormwood is is talking to Screwtape and saying, listen, it's not working. All I can get him to do is these tiny things, these no big deal things. 
And Screwtape says this. You will say that these are very small sins, and doubtless, like all young tempters, you are anxious to be able to report spectacular wickedness. But do remember, the only thing that matters is the extent to which you separate the man from the enemy, namely God. It does not matter how small the sins are, provided that their cumulative effect is to edge the man away from the light and out into the nothing. Murder is no better than cards, if cards can do the job. Indeed, the safest road to hell is the gradual one, the gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, and without signposts. You see, friends, to the evil one, small and gradual is fine with the devil. He knows if he comes in all singing and dancing, you will not respond because you will go, oh my gosh, I can't do that. So he's fine with slow and gradual edging you into things, fanning into flame things that you know are wrong, but you think, I don't think it's that big a deal. You know, I, I don't think it's the end of the world. That's what he loves you to think. He fans that into flame until it's too late and sin has taken you further than you wanted to go, cost you more than you wanted to pay and taken you far more than you ever imagined. Slow and gradual is fine with the devil. So I want to ask you, Christian, are there any known sins in your life that right now you're just flirting with that one little bit? Thinking that it's not a big deal. It's It's not a big deal. It's just on the side. Are there any known sins in your life that you're beginning to allow and tolerate, believing the lie that surely they're not that big a deal? Half a poison pill won't kill you. No one will know. My friend, sin will take you further than you wanted to go, keep you longer than you wanted to stay, and cost you way more than you wanted to pay. And you will never be truly following after God's will, passionate for him, all in for him, when in reality you're flirting over here. You have to choose. It's one or the other. And so if there are known sins in your life, that maybe even now as I'm speaking and the Holy Spirit's doing what he does, he is identifying in your life. Then I want to exhort you then to repent of these sins this very day and resolve once again this very day to fight the good fight of faith. Should not be duped by Satan who is standing at the side of your life, wanting, willing you to waste your life. I want to urge you to repent of those sins and resolve once again that I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back, no turning back. Behind me, Satan, I'm going with him. Do that today. Don't be duped. You will never, ever Be ready to follow the will of God if you are flirting with known sins in your life. They will cost you more than you wanted to pay, keep you longer than you wanted to stay, and take you further than you ever wanted to go. Yeah, there's no doubt that when we decide to follow Jesus and we put sin to death in our lives, that good things can come from that. It's in keeping with our identity in Christ. And obviously, our sin is at war against us, and so we must seek to put it to death. Otherwise, it will seek to put you to death. 
But also the truth is, as I said before, it, putting sin to death in our lives and living like Christ does have a profound effect in terms of a testimony. You know, one man who I heard just this week of his story was a man called Rob Flood, who's a pastor in Covenant Fellowship Church in Philadelphia, the States. He actually became a Christian in his 20s. And he didn't grow up um, going to church. But actually his story is he was working in an office and there was a Christian in the office and everybody maligned and ridiculed and persecuted that man. They thought he was an absolute idiot for what he stood for, including Rob. He was one of the chief people who used to malign this guy and have a go at this guy and laugh at this guy for his faith and what he stood for. And yet one day, as he heard an answer from this guy, being so gracious and loving, his heart was pinged. And he was affected. How can this guy be so gracious when we're having such a go? To the point where he attended church with that man that Sunday. And he went with him. And two weeks later, he gave his life to Christ, and he's now a pastor in Covenant Fellowship Church. How? Well, ultimately through the gospel. But how did he come to hear the gospel? Well, through the life of a man who is willing to say, as for me and my life, I'm living for Christ, and even if you guys are going to have a go, then so be it. I'm going to love you anyway and seek to do my job for the glory of God. It led him to faith. My friends, that is the power of a life well lived. That is the power of a holy life. Does that mean then that as we live these holy lives that everybody will become Christians? They'll just go and say, oh wow, this is amazing. No. And that's what Peter tells us next. Because as we live for Christ, though some will respond in the faith, not all will. And so the third part of being prepared and ready and willing to embrace suffering in our lives, number three, is that we must be ready to count, count the cost. We must be ready to count it. Look with me at verse four. It says, with respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. See, here's the reality. Once upon a time, the original readers of this letter were just like those around them. They used to live in sensuality and passions and drunkenness. They would be at all the parties. Hey, they'd be hosting the things. They were just like everybody else around them once upon a time. And then they become these Christians and their lives radically change. And to start off with their friends and their family, they're just surprised. I mean... This is kind of different to what we were doing like last week. To start off with, they are surprised. But that surprise quickly turned into persecution. Maligning. Slander. Persecution. That was their story. These men and women were suffering for the sake of the gospel. And my friends, the reason why this text is in front of us this morning, imbibed in God's word, is because there is nothing new under the sun. It is the maligning then that a student or young adult receives as they seek to live for Christ. For those of you that are teenagers in state school, that you're trying to live for Jesus Christ and honor him in your life, and your friends think you're a jerk. That's what this is talking about. Be maligned for following Christ. People won't just be surprised. They will go after you. It is the persecution that comes from a football club member or a band member or a social group member as they stand on things and at certain events they're like, hey guys, I just can't come to that or look, if we're gonna go, I'm going to need to go now. 
People aren't just going to go, oh, that's fine, mate, no dramas. No, they're going to start to persecute you because they think you're weird. And they think that because of your stand, you think they're wrong, which you do. They work it out. So they persecute you. What do you mean we're wrong? Go away. But we can't stay. We can't just imbibe the same values as the world. They need to see we're different. We need to be different as followers of Christ. We shouldn't think that we can't get drawn into those things and unaffected. We will. So it's the football club member or the band member or the social group member that takes a stand on things and doesn't attend certain events. And it's the persecution that comes as a result or the slander that comes for the employee that chooses to live for Christ because of their values and their standards and their lines on things, lines that they're unwilling to cross. They never get promoted. In fact, behind the scenes, they get slandered. You're the weird guy or the weird girl that's talked about in the office. Because what do you, what do you, what, why are you so different? What do you mean you don't work on Sundays? We all work on Sundays. Why don't you? What do you mean you won't come out to that party where we stay up late and drink all night? Come on! We're trying to build a team. It's the persecution that comes when we truly live for Christ and make that decision. My friends, did you think Christianity was one of comfort and ease and total acceptance? Because if you did, you have been painfully misinformed. The Bible is clear. That for all those that have decided to follow Jesus, it will cost you something. And it will be difficult at times as you truly live for Christ because as you truly live for him, you will endure persecution and maligning and slander at different times and you should not be surprised when that comes. But what we must also realize, brothers and sisters, is it will be totally and utterly worth it. Jesus himself addresses it this way in Matthew 5, verses 11 and 12. He says, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. His point is, listen, when you get persecuted or slandered and maligned like Christians do all over the world, then rejoice and be glad because one day you will stand before him as king of kings and you will receive your reward. You will receive your well done. You will have walked the path of suffering just like Christ did and you will receive his well done for staying true to your cause. And that is exactly what Peter picks up here in verses 5 and 6. Look with me at verse 5. He says, but they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. He's saying there, listen, all those people who persecute you and malign you and slander you, just understand this, that one day they will give an account before the King of Kings and Lord of Lords for every word they've uttered to you. And the judge of the earth will do right. You don't need to defend yourself. You have a great defender that will one day stand and give them and hold them to account. And then in verse 6, he says, For this is why the gospel is preached, even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. You know, on first glance, that could be confusing, but let me be clear. All he's talking about here is Christians who heard the gospel and gave their life to Christ who have since 
died, what has happened to them? This was a common question of first century Christianity. It's all very new for them. So they're like, listen, we, all, we, we, we heard Jesus, we heard and responded, we put our faith in him, but now the different guys that put their faith in him, they're kind of dying. So what happens to them? Where do they go? And they're concerned, they're concerned. And so Peter is saying, hey, listen, you don't need to be concerned because all those who die in the flesh, one day and even now, they will be with Christ in the spirit. His point, going all the way back to chapter 1, verse 3, is you know what? For all of us who put our faith in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, the best is yet to come. (laughs) For they are home now with the Father. Whatever they died from, whether it be an illness or a persecution, they are now home and living in the Spirit with Christ himself. For as Christians, suffering and death will not have the last word. Jesus will have the last word, and your life will be vindicated and will rise victorious, and you will be with him for all eternity. Don't get sidetracked in with the suffering in this earth, because the best is yet to come. That's his point. He's taking us all the way back in verse 6, all the way back to the start of the book and saying, listen, pay attention. Eyes need to go up. This isn't it. If you think this is it, all you will do will be give yourself passionately to ease and comfort and acceptance, whatever it takes. But if you realize and realize and understand this isn't it, then you'll be willing to sacrifice because that's it, not this. You'll be willing to forgo ease and comfort because of the ease and comfort that will come that day, not this day. We get it so wrong in the West. It's one of the things we can learn from our Pakistani brothers and our Iranian brothers that are willing to get sacrificed for the cause of Christ because they know this isn't it. Yet because we have it so easy, we can get duped into thinking this is it. Church, it is not it. We are sojourners here, aliens here, lodgers here. The best is yet to come. So brothers and sisters, will it cost us to follow Jesus? Yes, it will. Yes, it will. Does that mean everything we do will be hard? No, not at all. The Apostle Paul suffers great hardship But then towards the end of his life, he says, listen, you know, to live is Christ, to die is gain. I can't decide which one I want the most. He loved living in this earth as well because he knew that was to be with Christ here and to be able to serve Jesus. That's a great thing. But it will cost us. It won't always be a fun run for Jesus, but it will be totally worth it. When you see his face and you hear his well done, it will be totally worth every maligning every slander, every moment of persecution. And so I want to encourage you. Verse 1. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. Since he walked a path of suffering for the sake of Christ, no, you at times are going to need to walk that same path. And it isn't always going to be easy. But it will be totally worth it. Author Gerald Sitzer, just to conclude, says it this way. He says, We therefore cannot escape struggle, nor should we try. Rather, we should embrace it as one aspect of our calling to discipleship. 
For the goal of life in this world is not ease, prosperity, and success, but intimacy with God, maturity in character, and influence in the world. My friends, don't make our lives about ease and prosperity, success. Fathers, happy Father's Day. As you train your kids in the way they should go, don't make your focus ease and prosperity and success. They're not the main thing. But make your focus intimacy with God, maturity and character, and influence in the world for the sake of the gospel. That's what we're training them up in the way they should go. And for all of us here, men and women, married and single alike, I want to encourage you. It will be worth it in the end. So let's count the cost of following Jesus and truly live for the glory of God. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, it is a joy to sit under your preaching. Lord, when we gather around your word in particular and we hear the words of the Bible, Lord, what a joy and a privilege it is to sit under your word and Lord, I do thank you for helping us today. Lord, no one is going to be high-fiving one another as if this is euphoria. But Lord, I thank you that you are maturing us as a local church and preparing us to live in the world that we live in. We We are exiles here, Lord. And so, Lord, we pray that by your grace and for your glory, we may live for that day and not this day. Help us to do this by your grace. In Jesus' name. Amen.